Well, in America, we kind of live and die by this like heroic immigration story. That's who we are. But there's a really big difference between immigrants and refugees. And I, you know, I saw that at the very basic level of they had no intention of leaving Afghanistan, no desire. You know, we all think when somebody, a refugee's life is saved and their lives were at risk, this, this had to happen, that, you know, it's happy days. And they got on that transport plane and sobbed. Welcome to Voices of Victors, a podcast that asks thought-provoking questions, cultivates culturally relevant dialogue, and reveals truths about our shared human experience through discussions with diverse members of the University of Michigan community, ranging from alumni and faculty to students and staff. This podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association of the University of Michigan. I'm your host, James McRae, a 1997 alum of the University of Michigan. Our theme for season two of Voices of Victors is diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. From examining inequities of climate change and paid family leave to discussing authentic allyship, we'll be sharing stories and hearing from experts from the U of M community. On today's episode, we discuss supporting vulnerable refugees who are seeking safety in the United States through the personal story of a U of M alum and refugee host. We'll also hear from a U of M professor whose research focuses on refugee resettlement. The UN Refugee Agency reports that there are now more than 20 million refugees around the world, and the war in Ukraine has enacted the fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II. Not only is this global crisis long existing, but it will continue to be a growing challenge given the current geopolitical dynamics of power. After nearly 20 years of occupation, the United States forces withdrew from Afghanistan in August of 2021. Since then, the United States has welcomed nearly 76,000 Afghan nationals, some supporters of the U.S. mission, others human rights defenders and political activists, all at risk under the new Taliban government and forced to free their country. These events in Afghanistan only represent one facet of the much bigger and perpetual humanitarian crisis. At the crossroads of this crisis are refugees coming to the U.S. by the tens of thousands and American citizens desperately wondering how they can offer safety and asylum as part of an immediate response. What's happening at these crossroads is perhaps one of the most compelling and inspirational aspects of refugee resettlement efforts the opening of doors as American citizens offer their homes to vulnerable refugees seeking safety and new beginnings in a new country. In today's episode, we hear a personal story about the hosting experience and later gain deeper insight from a refugee resettlement expert. Let's get started by introducing today's first guest, Jules Pieri, a 1982 graduate who will share her firsthand story of hosting two Afghan refugees. Jules is an investment partner at X Factor Ventures, an entrepreneur in residence emeritus at Harvard Business School, and the co-founder and former CEO of The Gromit. Welcome, Jules. Thanks, James. I am so curious to just hear your story and how you came to host refugees and asylum seekers in your home. I think it's fascinating. And I, w- I would love to just hear kind of how that began, how you started with that and, and what drew you to doing that. Sure. Well, let's start with the basics. I have, um, no, you know, no real immigrant history. You know, it's a couple generations back. I have no connections to Afghanistan. 
I've never been friends with a refugee or have any particular, you know, kind of insight or savvy about this topic. Zero. I'm like Jane ordinary on this, um, this, this kind of arena, but uh, my partner Drew is um, definitely like a card carrying empath. He's incurably idealistic and we're a good team because I'm super problem solving. And he said to me in uh, August, I can see that um, a local resettlement agency where we live in Boston is looking for volunteers to host refugees. There's going to be a huge influx from Afghanistan. And he had been exposed to a specific Afghan refugee through his own work. So he had a little bit more connection to the crisis than I did. And he saw how difficult um, that person's life is in the United States. And so he said, what do you think? Can I fill out this form? Can I volunteer us? And uh, I said, sure. Then we didn't hear anything. So that's August. And then uh, on October of 21, 19, um, we get this one paragraph email from a caseworker at the International Institute of New England. His name's Mustafa. And he says, um, we have this couple, newlywed, former US Army interpreter. They need a place for a couple nights. They're in a hotel right now. The husband speaks some English, the wife a little, what do you think? And well, Drew said to me, what do you think? And we said, well, we signed up, you know, we, the thinking hasn't changed. We have to say yes, we volunteered, we wanna say yes. So um, within 24 hours, the couple, I'll just tell you their first names, Israr and Saeda, Israr is 26, Saeda was 22, um, came, came to our home. And we live in Boston in a condo. And um, it's a, my, my youngest son, we're a blended family of five kids. And we literally just like recovered a bedroom uh, like 10 days before. Um, wow. And so, you know, our place felt kind of big to me, frankly. You know, I grew up in Detroit sharing a bed with my sister all the way through college like a tiny, tiny little bungalow. So, you know, this 2000 square foot condo seems big to me. And um, so we had room and Isra and Saida showed up uh, in the lobby of our condo building. And I was pretty nervous, not about sharing my home, but about being a good host. Um, I'm Catholic, I grew up in Detroit. These are now I know devoutly Muslim people. I've got a level of awareness about Islam that is, you know, college educated person who might have it, but nothing more than that. Um, and I didn't know the first thing about how to um, behave in, in terms of being respectful to their culture. So I mean, simple things. I, I mean, I know how to be a good human, but I knew it might be offensive to shake the man's hand, but I didn't know how else to greet him. You know, like I wasn't going to hug him. That seemed crazy. Um, but I, doing nothing but nod my head um, seemed, seemed off too. So I shook his hand. I shook Saida's hand. And now that I know Saida better, she's super tender. I should have given her a big hug. But again, I'm like in this zone of like total strangers, don't want to overwhelm these people. 
you know, and she's sort of shyly, terrifiedly looking out from under her headscarf. She looked really scared. And Isra looked exhausted and wary. Um, he's a big, beefy, tall, muscular guy. Um, and, but I have three sons, like, that don't scare me, you know, like I, his appearance didn't scare me, but I didn't know what he might've been through, you know, so I didn't know what was behind the fatigue and weariness. Brought them up to the condo with the caseworker. They had two blankets and a trash bag with about three changes of clothes. That's it. And a plastic bag with documents. Wow. And, um, we walked around the condo and I'm like chattering like crazy, you know, trying like nervous chatter, trying to show them the place and um, their room, which I was kind of lucky. It, it's kind of like bright and colorful, like Afghan colors. So I could see Saida's um, tiny smile form mm -hmm. when they put down their stuff in that room, like tiny sigh. And we sat down and I knew tea was a big thing. So I made some bad tea because I don't make tea, uh, but served some tea. I did serve a chocolate chip cookie uh, as well, you know, straddling the two cultures from the first five minutes. And um, they didn't say much of anything. And so it was really hard to know what they were even understanding as I was discussing with the caseworker, like, again, trying to be respectful, Israr was a U.S. Army interpreter. He has to understand some of what I'm saying, but he wasn't responding that much. And so, I'm, you know, that thing when you're like looking at two people talking, but only one's responding, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, Question about that. Um, you talked about the, the caseworker is there with you. Can you talk about that? Like what the whole process was like to kind of actually get them there? You, you mentioned you got the email. Um, what happened at that point? Like, yeah, can you just describe the process for us? Well, this is a crisis. So none of the normal happened. Normally, this agency would have a lot of warning and a lot of just um, kind of agency about how many people they take and when they take them. That's not true right now. These agencies are being more or less forced to take, there are statewide allocations and every state except a handful, Hawaii, South Dakota, Wyoming, have been given an allocation of, of Afghan refugees out of a total of, the numbers vary from what I read, 70 to 100,000. So Massachusetts has its allocation about, about 2,000. And this agency, you know, just has to take them, basically, and they get a small budget to handle them. And there was no process, but normally what they would do is have a house, an apartment, an affordable apartment sourced and furnished before anybody shows up. That's really important. And there's none of that happening. Um, it's very rare for them to go straight into a home. What's happening is they're going into uh, hotels, which is since 40% of the people arriving, at least in Massachusetts, are children. That's really rough. No cooking facilities, no school. Um, we were unusual, I think, you know, to offer our actual home. So there was no vetting. I mean, that's also, luckily, we're good people. But that, that was, you know, dangerous, potentially, or risky. I wouldn't say dangerous. Um, it, there was no discussion. Like, it, it was just like, we fill out a form, and then they're here. That's it. And wow. um, so did you do any type of 
prep for bringing them in? I couldn't. Or? I had less than 24 hours. Wow. And, you know, I had a fully booked day even on the day they were coming. So uh, it was, you know, life didn't stop, but ultimately it did, frankly. It became, um, they stayed in our home from October to mid-January and um, they live very close by on purpose. And it was nearly a full-time job during that, that three plus months for me. So when they first came, the caseworker leaned over to me kind of quietly and said, do you have any spare time? And I'm thinking, well, everybody's spare time, but you know, what do you really mean? And, um, you know, essentially the agencies are so overwhelmed that in this case where they saw that a, you know, I could basically work really hard and find the time and B, this is relative to other couples or families, an easy case with some English on board and no children. Um, they pretty much left us alone with them um, the whole time. Now, some paperwork was already in place because they'd been in Massachusetts um, for about 10 days already. So um, they'd arrived at Logan Airport and their, their originally assigned agency didn't show up. So they were alone in the airport at 2 a.m., no one came to meet them. And this agency just, they were the first people to arrive from Afghanistan in this state. And there was another family scheduled to come at the same time. And luckily the agency I mentioned was there, saw these people who were all alone and took them, even though they weren't assigned to them and essentially you know, took over their case. But it made the paperwork really hard because their assignments had to switch. And um, they did do some of the, you know, followed up on things like in October, there was some legislation that gave Afghans um, a really important specific uh, refugee status called humanitarian parole, which entitles them to SNAP benefits to um, a specific allotment of $1,215 per person. Uh, it's called welcome money to um, the marketplace healthcare, uh, you know, that, that we have in, called mass health, but every state has their own version. Um, they're entitled to um, getting a work permit and a social security number, but they have no real legal status beyond that. It's just a two year temporary status, but the agency took care of all of that. I ended up having to chase down most of that stuff because it wow. didn't come through healthcare, uh, social security numbers, work permits, everything was really delayed. Um, and every, and you can't, if you don't have a social security number in this country, you don't exist. You know, you just don't exist. If you don't have a driver's license, if you don't have a work permit and, you know, I move fast and everything I do in my life. So I was like getting them job offers within like three or four weeks, but they couldn't start in the end till January because without the proper paperwork. And yeah. Everything. Like this yeah. where I was hired by Whole Foods and he was literally the first person in all of Whole Foods from Afghanistan to be hired. And they didn't have a way to handle somebody with, you know, we were told by the agency that employees were required to, to couldn't, we didn't have to wait for the social had the work permit number, which we did get sooner, uh, they could start, but Whole Foods and Amazon couldn't figure that out. So they got delayed. But anyway, um, I ended up like setting aside most of my life for that period of time. And it's not done, but 
it's less intense now. So, so tell us about that. You just mentioned that you uh, helped them get jobs. Um, you, you left off in the story where they entered this room, bright colors and was feeling a little bit more like home. What I like, what came next? What were like, I, I assume there were challenges, um, but what were the highlights? What were the challenges? What were surprises that you kind of encountered throughout this journey? Yeah. Well, you know, in America, we kind of live and die by this like heroic immigration story. That's who we are. But there's a really big difference between immigrants and refugees. And I, you know, I saw that at the very basic level of they had no intention of leaving Afghanistan, no desire. You know, we all think when somebody, a refugee's life is saved and their lives were at risk, this this had to happen, that, you know, it's happy days. And they got on that transport plane and sobbed. I was surprised by that. They had no, they, for Israel and Saida, a successful life, you don't leave your parents' home. When you marry, a woman moves to her husband's family's home, but the generations just sort of stack up in the same house. And um, help each other, you know, whether it's childcare or economically. And because of the history of Afghanistan, they didn't have a lot of personal ambition around, you know, leaving the country. Uh, Sayed assumed education was closed off to her. Israel was getting some advanced education. He had subsequently become a, uh, an employee of a telecom company. But you know, just living with their families and having a family was their ambition and being safe, you know. And um, so, you know, that was kind of mind blowing to me, like land of milk and honey, golden opportunity. None of that stuff was operative in these conversations. Um, I was uh, surprised at Israel's English was, I call it battlefield English, but, you know, it's a little scary to me what the military personnel risks they might've taken with his level of English. He told me there were issues. So he doesn't have the English I thought an interpreter would have. There's a long way to go before he's fluent. So, so to be clear, I, are you saying that the level of English that he was using as an interpreter, that there could be some miscommunications or some things that he's he's relaying back to American military based on his English skills. Yeah, so he took a lot of personal risk and did all the things that we should be grateful for. But it, I hear interpreter and I think a fairly sophisticated level of English. It wasn't, it isn't. Um, Saida surprised me on the more positive side. Her, her absorption of English was so fast. She was moving and is moving really quickly. Like I learned within a month, man, this woman's understanding a good quarter, a third of what I'm saying, maybe more. Without a lot, she had a very little English education. Israel had paid for one class for her over the last year. So um, before they got married. So um, she's she's got a knack for it. She's, she's going to progress quickly with English. Um, so that was a positive surprise. Um, Afghanistan has been seemingly so isolated that the things that shocked me were like, they'd never heard of the Beatles. Hmm. And they cracked up one day when I was trying to explain to them what envelopes are stamps and stamps are for. And I said, well, what if you want to send a birthday card to somebody? What do you do? 
Well, there are two big problems with that statement. One, they don't celebrate birthdays. People don't even necessarily know their birthday. Number two, they have no postal service. You know, I'm here like coordinating a zillion donations for them, furnishing their home, getting their school paid for because I signed them up for ESL um, and having them write in, in Farsi thank you notes that, you know, they translated into English because I knew American, my American friends would just be so delighted to get that kind of note. And I'm telling them to do this and they're like dutifully writing dozens of thank you notes and they've never done this in their lives. Like write a note that you send in the mail. They had no idea, you know, of that concept. Um, doesn't exist, you know, if, if you wanna, I said, well, how do you pay your bills? Will you walk to the place, you know, the, the mobile phone store or whatever and you pay your bill. So, you know, so I have some basic assumptions about how life works in any country that were not, not true. My work, I surprised myself in that I have, like I mentioned earlier, three sons and I was not, and they're grown now out of the home, but I was not an indulgent mother. I, you know, held that first newborn and said, you will be independent. That is my job, you know? And I was like this diff, am this different person with Israel and Saida because there was, their entry into the home was a lot like a newborn. It was a complete disruption in our household. There was a lot of nonverbal communication. On my part, a lot of insecurity, probably I'm sure there's um, obsession. Like I would just float above the bed at night, worrying about them. Like, why are they sleeping with the light on? You know, they'd be up in the middle of the night. Why are they up? You know, um, health and what can I do? What can I do? So whereas I was this like more measured, you know, kind of, you know, do it, do it for yourself kind of mother. But these guys, I was super indulgent about like, if I could figure out they needed something, they had it in five minutes, like say to like a particular shampoo that's made in India. Well, it's obtainable. She had it, you know, and she needed like whole cardamom pods and I only had ground. Well, we're getting cardamom pods today, you know, <laughs> stat, we need cardamom pods. And because I could serve those physical needs where I couldn't serve the psychological ones, emotional ones that I didn't understand yet, you know, and some of the practical ones um, also took more time, you know, like getting them in the right ESL class. And like I mentioned, the jobs and teaching them public transportation and getting them doctors and, you know, lots of time in the ER and emergency care because a lot was neglected when they showed up. So, you know, some things were complex, some things were really challenging and some things were just like such a joy. Like, here's an example though, of like the odd relationship we formed that I didn't see coming. Um, about six days in, it's October and they have no clothes, right? So I'm sourcing clothes and shoes from all over the place. And I get on the Eddie Bauer website, they don't know, you know, e-commerce and show them both individually a down code that I thought was kind of good and basic and warm and thought, well, I'm not going to ask them to trawl the site, but they can pick out their own color. I'll buy it. Uh, and I, I'd say, call Israel over. And I say, um, you know, what color? He's very stylish. He's very proud of how he looks. He cares. So, and he says, oh, you choose. In Afghanistan, my mama always chooses. Hmm. He, like, I just like perfunctorily eliminate one color to make him feel like I was involved. But like I made him pick because like, you know, I don't know what color you like. I have no idea. I just met you six days ago. But that was a foreshadowing to what I 
said became our relationship about two days later. So we're a week into it. Um, Israr says, can we call you mama and papa? Hmm. And I thought I misheard him because, you know, he's this big brawl, you know, guy calling, why don't you call me mama? My kids don't call me mama, never have. And um, I kind of pretend I didn't hear it almost. I was, I was really uncomfortable. And um, he meant it. He just started doing it. And um, his mother in Afghanistan, you know, with WhatsApp, they're in touch all the time, said, you know, they're all, they're huge extended families, gotten very involved with their extended families. Um, but at that time, she said, you now have an American mother and an American father. She probably said mama and papa in their language, Pashto. And you must take care of them. You must respect them. She assigned them to us. Um, wow. And so, you know, they, I'm getting chills almost saying it because it was that kind of experience. Um, and I knew from the beginning, they were, had a lot of respect for older people. And I thought that's maybe why they want to call us that, but then, no, they meant what those words mean. They actually really meant that. And uh, it was, there are very funny times with the language, including um, in the beginning, Saida couldn't stand it when I was like, you know, making dinner or Drew was making dinner or we were cleaning up. She felt like she should do it. And she, she but her English wasn't there yet. So she kept telling me, mama, you stand, mama, you stand. She meant, please sit down. <laughs> but she kept saying, mama, wow. you stand. <laughs> and, you know, just like, I, it's funny how quickly you can figure out someone's heart and, and their intentions. And that part was, I, I couldn't believe how intense and loving the relationship became, how quickly, like so quickly, I, I still, you know, look back and I couldn't quite trust it almost like, you know, we don't have a lot of in common or something. We have some really disparate values, like, you know, women are weak is an Afghan or Israel statement or homosexuality is a sin. My youngest son's gay. You know, so loving these people who would condemn my son is a pretty big bridge for me. Um, that's where I'm wow. saying, like, is this real? Like, you know, with genetic or adopted children where you take them in your home and gradually form them around your own values and your own, you know, shared experiences to have that intensity of feeling, but none of the, none of the foundation. It's a really weird experience. So it sounds like beyond just the the host relationship, you you did develop uh, a more personal connection with them. Are, are they still in your home right now, or did I hear you say they they had gone on somewhere else? So um, the caseworker said to me, um, you know, they need to be independent, and I'm like, what? You don't need to tell me that. I that's I'm, I'm you know the queen of making kids independent. Uh, and part of that was, you know, finding an affordable apartment. And, and the, I told the caseworker we would do that. And we started looking around at apartments. Long story short, they are in their own apartment. But when we started looking, it looked, looked dicey because if we took them anywhere that wasn't walking distance, we live in a very dense urban part of Boston. Um, if we took them to basically cheaper places that were a little further away, Saida would just start crying 
you know, remember her ambition was to live in a, you know, multi-generation family home. So she doesn't want to live alone with her husband. So let's start there. Number two, she doesn't want to live alone with her husband far away from the only other people she knows. So we just started narrowing in on, you know, our neighborhood, which makes this difficult. It's, 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 it's expensive compared to some other neighborhoods where immigrants tend to settle. So um, I found a landlord um, couple who had a military history in their family who let me, I co-signed for the apartment. So let's be clear, um, people with no history, credit or otherwise in a country cannot get an apartment right. from strangers. The agencies play a really valuable role where they have built up relationships with landlords. But, you know, in this country, we only took it in 11,000 refugees in 2020. And 150 agencies closed since 2017. You know, we, we decided we don't do refugees anymore. So the agencies didn't have those relationships with landlords and the apartments were all gone. So they're rebuilding right now. So I took over, like I can find the housing, you know, I'm good at talking people into helping. And I got a realtor to do it for no, you know, find the apartment for no fee and the landlord, I mean, co-signing, I removed risk, of course, but they still didn't have to do it. There, there were other people wanted the apartment, but they did it because they care. And um, friends, it kind of helps to be my age group. All my friends are empty nesters who want to get rid of stuff. So <laughs> pretty easy to furnish the apartment really nicely. Um, and we got lots of gift certificates and set them up really well to have a very comfortable, you know, small, not fancy, but very close by home. So Jules, I could talk to you about this all day long because it is amazingly fascinating. And I think you are, are wonderful for doing for doing what you've done, you and your husband. Um, overall, what would you say this experience is, was like for you? Like if you were to sum it up and say what you got out of it, what you think they got out of it, how would you describe that? Two things. Um, I know I've never had a real problem in my life now. And um, it's scratched an itch I've had since I was a kid to like actually really help someone. It, like really, really help, not give a check, not be on a board, like directly help. I used to ask my parents, can we have like homeless people over for Christmas, like stupid kid things that don't make sense? You know, like this was my chance to do that in a meaningful way. I think, I think we probably, you know, put Israel and Saida years ahead of where they could have gotten by themselves by virtue of our resources and relationship. But it's a two-way street. I mean, it's incredibly rewarding to have such a big impact on someone just by sharing what you have without even trying that hard, really. It's a lot of time, but the like knowledge and connections and resources and you know, I was a poor kid who put myself through college and like I, I did it for myself. So it's really fun to do it for someone else. Do you have any advice for anyone who is is thinking about opening their home and doing something similar? I would say um, you should ask for the type of profile of family you think you can help. Like for me, I would need somebody who speaks English. I think you know, I, I would have really struggled if I couldn't communicate at all with the people. 
Um, don't think you need, you know, to be ready, like with a great guest room or anything, you know, that's, that's not it. But do be aware that these are people who might have lived perfectly complete lives in the place they came from. They didn't experience a lifetime of refugee status or suffering. So they're coming from a lifestyle that may not be exactly like yours, but it was what they wanted. And they gave it up. And they lost it possibly permanently in the case of an Afghan family. So um, I would be careful about using your assumptions about refugees. Like people would give me clothes that I wouldn't expect a stylish young couple to ever want to wear. I wouldn't even show them to them, you know? Wait a minute, like take that refugee, like these are young people who care about their first impression with all these new people they're meeting. They're not going to wear your janky, you know, sweater with holes in it, you know? So take that out of your head, like refugees get put into this status. It's not necessarily how they see themselves as their, you know, it's not, not their whole life necessarily. In some cases it is, but not, not in the case of these Afghans. Most of them coming here had connections, direct work with the U.S. or Afghan government, they had slightly more sophisticated lives than you might imagine and treat them with that respect. So would you ever do this again? Like here, I can answer it like this. I've, I now have seven children and that that's kind of my limit. Like I never wanted to have seven children in my life, James. <laughs> so I couldn't just like do another Isra or Ansaida, but if I hadn't done this already and somebody said, would you do it again? Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. that makes any it sense. sounds like they're very, still very much a part of your life. Yes. So in a way yes. you are still doing it. Oh, they're a permanent, yeah. like, you know, every birthday, every holiday, every, everything, they're part of our family. Every, everything, James, this is every, permanent. Every. All right. <laughs> well, Jules, um, Thank you so much, not just for being on this podcast, but it's rare that we get to talk to someone who has such hands-on impact. Um, and so just thank you for, for what you've done and uh, keep being the great person you are. Thank you. Uh, back at ya. The LEAD Scholars Program provides life-changing scholarships and extensive community support to Black, Native American, and Latinx students in pursuit of a world-class Michigan education. By investing in the futures of these remarkable students, you're investing in a more diverse and inclusive Michigan experience for all Wolverines. Make a gift to the LEAD Scholars Program today by visiting alumni.umich.edu forward slash lead giving. In addition to Jewel's personal story, we also spoke with U of M social work assistant professor, Dr. Odessa Gonzalez Benson. She offers historical context on refugee resettlement and shares why it should be considered from a broader global perspective as we continue to see the shifts in geopolitical power. I'm Odessa Gonzalez Benson. I'm assistant professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan. And my research is around refugee resettlement policy um, and also refugee resettlement practice and focusing on the work done by refugee-led community groups. Refugee resettlement is an important issue in this moment of time because of the, well, there are global powers that dictate our lives in this globalized world. And so it's always an issue because forced displacement is a kind of outcome of these 
global dynamics of power, right? Or dynamics of power in the global sense. And so uh, forced displacement or refugee resettlement or forced migration is actually really um, historical. So it's existed since like biblical times and it's been ongoing as long as there are global dynamics and countries at war and things, there's always kind of this consequence of forced displacement. I think that refugee resettlement should be considered as part of the uh, broader perspective of uh, what's happening globally in terms of geopolitics and economics and social political discourses, you know, and it's it can't be um, disentangled from this broader conversation about power in a global neoliberal sense. And so as long as we have that component of power globally, then refugees and asylum seeking and forced displacement will continue to be a challenge. Definition of a refugee is someone who is has been persecuted due to uh, race, religion, ethnicity, and is, is forcibly displaced out of their homes. And they can't, you know, stay in within their country because of violence or threat of violence. It's an official U- United Nations designation to be a refugee. I mean, you can be persecuted and fleeing violence, but not officially a refugee. But it's that official designation after they've been vetted and checked and interviewed in this whole process, and then they can qualify for refugee resettlement. When they're when they become identified as a refugee, then then they become in the care of the United Nations. So then they have in the refugee camps, and they have aid, food, and then basic shelter. You know, in the refugee camps, only one percent or two percent of refugees are resettled each year. So there's a vast majority who are kind of waiting. And then once they arrive in the third country resettlement, yes, then they have some social services. It's called reception and placement program where they're received from the airport and provided housing and basic needs and assistance with cultural orientation and also documentation and schools for the children and job employment assistance. So I think that one of the most common misconceptions about refugees is that they are dependent and they're receiving aid from the government, but actually there's no data to prove that. In fact, with the Refugee Act of 1980, with the hearings, they were saying the opposite. There was testimony about the opposite with regards to Vietnamese refugees. And so I think that's a misconception. Another misconception about refugee resettlement is that it's main priority is refugee well-being. The main goal of the refugee resettlement policy is to help refugees become self-sufficient as quickly as possible. And so a lot of the focus is on employment. And then another misconception about refugee resettlement is that we have this notion that it is charity or almost like a sort of like a generosity of the U.S. to be accepting refugees when in fact, I think that we have some relationality to refugees being in this, again, in this globalized world where our lives are intricately linked in terms of economics and politics and war, how the U.S. is kind of tied in with Afghan war and also the Ukraine and Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. And so we can't kind of separate these aspects to refugee resettlement and think of it as a welcoming or the U.S. as safe haven, because we should also understand that how we are related to their displacement.
And I think that that awareness or acknowledgement or understanding can also start to um, blur that us-them divide when we see that we're actually linked in a, in a more structural level. So I think that folks can help with the refugee resettlement in two ways. First is just being personal and providing assistance to or help in with like local communities that are assisting refugees, the refugee families. There's many, many refugee families and, you know, the resettlement agencies are always wanting volunteers and it's not just about furniture or clothes, but, you know, just friends and being neighbors with refugees in your communities. And the second part, I think, is just to learn more about or find ways or take effort to learn more about what's happening globally and what's caused their displacement and having a historical or structural analysis or take on refugee resettlement and forced migration because that can impact how you talk to your family members or your neighbors about these issues so that it's more complicated. And more complicated means that it's more difficult, but it's also can lend to more understanding. Thank you to our guests, Jules Pieri and Dr. Odessa Gonzalez-Benson, and to you, our listeners. University of Michigan alumni are making a difference all over the world, and we want to continue telling their stories. Are you a member of the Alumni Association? If you haven't already, we invite you to join us today. Visit our website to stay connected at alumni.umich.edu. Also, don't forget to give this podcast a rating or review and hit the follow button so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, go blue.